lights down Hand over my crown Hand over my heart I do this for my town I do this for my crowd So turn me up real loud My time, my time None of you people can tell me to stop Hello everybody, welcome to this week's episode of MGR Unplugged My head is exploding today Yes, just, uh, I just listened to a uh, did you listen to that? Did you listen to the last episode of uh, Joe Rogan with um, Alex, Jones. Alex Jones? And then before that, it was uh, Kanye West. Uh, it's a big hitters this week. Yeah, actually, yeah. That's, this is this is not the topic of today's podcast, by the way. We're going to discuss cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, Kanye. Ethereum, and everything. But, Kanye 2020. Yeah, but uh, Joe Rogan, who, as you guys know very well, he just signed a huge contract with um, Spotify. Um, he had uh, Kanye West just before the weekend, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, long interview. Interesting. I mean, uh, which, by the way, Kanye West is running for president. Um, for those of you who don't see it on the ballot, you can still vote for him if you want to. And then, um, so that was very interesting. I mean, I recommend that you listen to it, whether you like Kanye or not. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting to see his points of view on different things. And then um, just two days ago, I think he uploaded another one with uh, Tim Dillon, who's a comedian that we really enjoy. We actually went to see him two or three weeks ago, I think. He was here in Phoenix. And then um, Alex Jones, of course, of uh, infamous Alex Jones, Mr. Uh, Conspiracy Theory. So... I just finished it this morning. It was a three-hour-plus, I think, episode. Yeah. So for those of you that say hours are very long, that was three hours plus. And, um, oh, my God, these guys are like, uh, he's full of uh, theories. And Tim Dillon is a big fan of his, too. So what do you think about it? Do you, do you listen to the whole thing? I did finish it yesterday. Yeah. Um, it's Alex Jones. I mean, if you know who Alex Jones is, you know what you're getting when you listen well, to it. It's for a little background, he, he got suspended or banned from if not all the uh, I mean pretty much all of the uh, social media platforms right I mean YouTube yeah. is, is not allowing his channel anymore banned his the channel yeah. Facebook Twitter even Apple podcast mm -hmm. uh, stop putting the podcast for all his Spotify Spotify too actually by the way is true uh, for his conspiracy theories uh, disseminating false information blah blah the blah the reason he got banned was because of the Sandy Hook thing Yes, Cause that, he, was the, that was the, uh, the, the, the straw that brought the cameras back, basically, because yeah, he was he getting different warnings. That <clears throat> at one point, and he's taken it back, he's apologized, all that, but uh, he was at one point saying that Sandy Hook was fake and that it was actors and that basically uh, they were lying. And uh, Yeah, the whole thing was staged. Because of that, a lot of his fans were like sending death threats and stuff to the parents of the children who died mm -hmm. because they, they thought they were actors, that it wasn't real. So basically that's, that's why he got banned off all these platforms. Um, you know, I mean, listen, I, I'll say one thing about Alex. I did not believe in the pedophile rings. Um, I heard about them for years, right? And he was one of the biggest proponents that there was an island for pedophiles, pedophile rings, that a lot of elites like Bill Clinton and uh, a whole host of others were involved, some other. involved in, in these pedophile like rings and they were trafficking children and they had an island. I thought that sounded crazy and it was true. And right. Jeffrey, he was talking about Jeffrey Epstein for years and it was true. So is he right about everything? No, definitely not. 
So you write about some things, yeah, and so it makes you definitely question things when he is right about things that sound so crazy beforehand, mm-hmm. but then end up being true. Right. Um, so I mean, I don't want to get into the, the podcast is obviously very long, but the, the thing that I I was most um, surprised by is that you know when when Rogan moved to Spotify, he had a lot of critics thinking because he's always been very you know he's he's Joe Rogan, he's the most independent, so he's always been a free spirit as far as being able to run his show the way he wants it, no censorship, nothing. And then when he went to Spotify, he started getting uh, some comments thinking that the shows were not the same, that Spotify has this committee that they need to approve everything and basically censor some of the comments. They they transferred the whole podcast library and they left some out, including Alex Jones' previous episode and some others that were a little more controversial. So all that stuff was not clearly explained. But then... Um, he just had this podcast, which in one or two days down had like two million or three million downloads by now. Oh, much more than that. Well, last night I think we were looking, or it was two nights ago. I forgot. Oh, I mean, I mean, I think it's probably easy. I, I, I mean, there's YouTube and then there's the other downloads. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just talking YouTube. I was watching YouTube on on the large on the big TV last night, Look and right I saw now. the. Uh, but. I mean, the downloads are incredible, which means that people actually do like that kind of content, even if it's long. I don't know how much they were listening or watching. It has 7 million views on YouTube already. Just on YouTube, 7 million. That's that's outrageous. And that doesn't include any of the uh, audio podcast networks, yeah. Spotify, Apple Podcasts. He said it's about 50-50 normally. Okay, so, so, so you, you can, can say he, there's almost certainly more than 10 million listeners to that podcast right. already. So, so the point is that Alex Jones was banned from all the social media platforms basically for his which is funny because he was banned from apple Podcasts, and now the podcast yeah. that episode is the number one this Ranking morning on, on, on apple, apple. Podcasts, exactly yeah. and and the same thing for people that were saying that spotify was uh censoring or controlling the content and the the guests and they had to be kind of pre-approved and all that stuff which rogan said forever that's not true i have total freedom to do whatever i want and um so uh, you know i mean that's just how it is so i i you know, whether you like conspiracy theories or not, I'm not a big conspiracy theorist person. Um, but um, some of the things, like you said, they make you kind of double check and, and think about it. So, um, um, yeah, I mean, and, but, and the thing but, is, but yeah, like, like some of them sound crazy, but then some of them end up being true. And that's right. when it makes you question things. But the other thing is that they also, because of the timing of this podcast, they um, they also discuss obviously the elections and the campaigns and all that. So without getting into political sides, I mean, obviously they, they have their own opinions about how uh, the campaign is being manipulated. Uh, the media has been manipulated, the message. Um, obviously COVID is, is the center of attention these days. And uh, I think they say that they're going to have a podcast or some kind of get together on election night, right? To go over the results and everything live or this something like that. Said, so yeah. I'm not sure exactly how they will work it out but um either way it was it was interesting and uh head spinning for sure i was i was working out actually this morning listening to the last hour of it and, and i was like phew, my head was just exploding like i said so anyways enough of that uh but yeah we do have the elections amazingly coming in three four days uh, apparently there are 70 million people that have already voted that i think is a record for for obviously uh, with covid and all that a lot of people prefer to mail in their ballots ahead of time and not just not being in line and all that so so that's one of the reasons but there's been so much um campaigning actually for voting ahead of time that i'm not surprised that this year 
they say that 70 million is usually about half of the uh, um, people that normally vote. So normally, I guess 150 million people vote in the U.S., which is quite a bit. Um, so half of them apparently have already voted. So they campaign or they campaign in by the uh, candidates over the next the next 48 hours or 72 hours will be for those who are undecided and they haven't voted yet. So we'll see how much of that is going to change. But yeah, we'll see um, November 3rd, if, if it's November 3rd, or how long you think it's going to take to find out. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. I just want to fast forward through the month of November. Yeah, I know, I know. Well, we'll see. I mean, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to fast forward, but it's going to it's going to drag a little bit. So, um, all right. So let's move on. Uh, the actual topic for today is going to be, or is actually, uh, cryptocurrency and um, blockchain, um, and then we'll get into some of the actual currencies, like uh, clarifying a little bit of Bitcoin. And the reason why is because, you know, it, it, we're living in a time where people. The Fed has been manipulating uh, rates, obviously, for the past, since the pandemic started. I mean, basically, interest rates now are down to zero, which means that there's for savers, is bad. You're, you know, whether you go to, when you put your money in the bank to save money, and back in the days, you used to get 5 6% interest rate, which is it's pretty significant. You know, you have uh, $50,000, $100,000 saved, and at the end of the year, you have $6,000 extra, which is 500 bucks a month just in savings and interest rates. So uh, that's been disappeared right now. So if you want to put the money somewhere so it's a little protective for inflation, which is another topic in itself, you want the money to be making at least 2 or 3% return, uh, whatever you park it, so to speak. Mm. More than that. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, uh, let's just consider inflation as, as the Fed def definition of inflation between 2 or 25 Let's say that you want to make 3% to be above inflation. So, But really, there's no way to, to invest your money safely uh, even though you just get a 3% return, but that was basically the safe return that is low risk because you put in a money market account or savings account or something like that, or even CDs, and they give you that kind of interest rate. And uh, you say, okay, you know what? I'm not, I don't want to invest in the market. It's too risky for me or for whatever reason. And then um, you just put the money in a savings account or a high yield savings, which is to 3%, and at least you kind of live with inflation at the inflation level. But now that doesn't exist. I mean, with the interest rates, interest rates at zero, basically you get nothing. You you put the money, and then the bank is going to give you nothing. So, um, with that in mind, um, crypto is basically, or other possible options are kind of surfacing right now. And in the last, just in the last, I'll say two weeks specifically to condense it a little more, we've seen a lot of people that are seeing this issue with a lot of money being printed. Um, devaluation of the dollar and all that uh, in the future, obviously, and then uh, looking into other types of investments, uh, which basically brings me to the point that Bitcoin has gone from, it was in the 11,000 and changed, 11,500 or something about uh, two, three weeks ago. And um, as of yesterday, it was actually even today, right now it's 13,500 or something, which is the highest it's been since 2018, I think. So David actually knows quite a bit more about uh, blockchain and Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general. So I wanted to, first of all, I wanted to clarify the technology versus the currency. So let's start with the blockchain technology and kind of clarify what that is, because everybody knows that crypto is based on blockchain, but they don't understand, I mean, a lot of people don't still understand what blockchain means for the world, because blockchain is here to stay and it's here to grow and it's going to dominate 
a lot of our lives in the future as far as how we do business. So take it away, brother, and uh, explain uh, as much as you can in, in terms that we all understand what blockchain means for for us, for, for contracts, for the way we do our live our lives now as far as the contracts, how blockchain will affect that. Um. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the world's biggest expert. There's right. plenty of people who know more than me. But no, I mean, um, you know, blockchain, the problem with block, I don't even like that word anymore because it's been uh, stolen from the people actually making things by all of these uh, posers and snake oil salesmen and pundits who just, you know, it's become another buzzword in the same way that like no one in the, AI community really likes using the term AI anymore because mm -hmm. it's become so like people use that word constantly for things that aren't even AI and don't have actually yeah. any understanding. Yeah, they, they so that's won't. why they start using ML and they, 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 they try to stay away from AI blockchain. I mean, very simply, it's just, it's just a mechanism for decentralized trust. That's that's really what blockchain so, is. So so since you said that about the name, let me interrupt you for a second. Since you said that about the name, what did the name blockchain come from? Obviously, you have block and you have chain. So it was a, a series of blocks. Yeah, it's. I mean, it depends how far you want to go back, but the origins start in the eighties, seventies, um, back in the early days of computing, where you know it's it's all based on cryptocurrencies. It's crypto as in cryptography right um and, and so it all started with uh cryptographers back in the 70s and 80s who uh as computers were being uh basically developed um started trying to see what they could use um what what new methods of cryptography would be enabled with computers mm -hmm. um and so that's what that's when it all started and so th this has been building for a long time now it it took a long time to kind of figure out exactly how to turn it into a usable thing. Um, and it all it all culminated with Satoshi Nakamoto in 2009 when he released Bitcoin or whoever Satoshi is released Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, blockchain is the, the reason they call it that is because, for example, Bitcoin uses um, you have it's, it's a chain of blocks. Um, and each block is a um, block of transactions, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, like you could call it, other people call it a distributed ledger. So it's this idea that instead of having, if, you, if you're an accountant, right, and you have a ledger of all transactions that are going on on this chain, instead of having it all on one computer, you have it on many, many, many computers around the mm -hmm. world, and it's decentralized and distributed between all of them. So if someone hacks your computer or takes your computer down, you still have many, many copies of it around the world. And the difficulty of uh, hacking it becomes astronomically higher because it's distributed, because mm -hmm. you don't have at one central point of failure, basically. Right. You um, have a lot of redundancy so to speak as far as where the ledger is hosted if that's the way right like like in in the website world the websites used to be hosted by one server and then when once when that one server was hacked entire website whatever was down now modern servers or modern companies use like ourselves we use redundancy which means that we have multiple servers with copies of the same website so if this server goes down mechanically for whatever reason or some kind of event 
uh, flaws, fires, whatever, then there's tons of other servers that have the same copy of the website. So that's just on the on the our level that is easy to understand. But this is the same thing as the ledger that you're talking about. Yeah, just much more distributed. Right, much more. Yeah. Um, so then the cryptocurrencies, they're just one um, implementation of blockchain. Basically, blockchain can be used for a lot of things. Currency happens to be one of the biggest and mm -hmm. maybe maybe arguably the most important thing that it could be used for. It's definitely the most popular. But yeah, wait, obviously. before we get into the, into the actual currency, what applications of blockchain are the most um, <clears throat> being implemented right now? That There's already blockchain being used for yeah. a number of contracts and things. Um, so yeah, so you mentioned contracts. <clears throat> so so one thing that it, blockchain does is it lets you create what's called smart contracts. Um, and so the, what is a normal contract, right? A contract is an agreement between two people, two companies, a group of people, group of companies, whatever, right? It's, it's, it's an agreement between people. Um, but the problem is that there's lots of litigation um, in contracts and how you interpret the words in a contract can vary from person to person, right? And this is the job of lawyers. Lawyers look at contracts and they litigate and interpret exactly the meaning of them. Mm -hmm. And that's why you hire a lawyer to write your contracts because in theory, they can write a contract that is bulletproof, right? There's no such thing as a bulletproof contract, right. but... That's the goal. They cross all the T's, dot all the I's. They make it like it's, airtight. It's kind of similar to when people talk <clears throat> about the like U.S. Constitution. The way it's written is very vague, and that's why you have so many what they call like constitutional scholars, where so many people interpret the Constitution in different ways because words ultimately are um, amendable, and they change in meaning over time. They can be interpreted in different ways. Um, you know, the right to bear arms, that's very generic, right? And that mm -hmm. are there limits to that? Is it unlimited, right? So this is like right. why you have all of this. And so the same thing with any other contract. Um, so what a, what a smart contract does is you can write the contract instead of in the English language or whatever language, you can write it in code. You could write it in Python. You can write it in whatever code you want. Um, and then it's done, right? Code is code. It doesn't it doesn't change basically. Um, and so then you can write a contract in code, and it just makes the process much more seamless and much easier. Um, and so you really are kind of replacing the need for a lot of lawyers, uh, a lot of, uh, I mean. The, the paperwork industry, which is quite the large industry, um, could very well be replaced by blockchain and smart contracts. So, so I'll give you an example. So like if you have a will, um, wills tend to be very complicated, right? There's lots of disputes in wills. Um, but if you just made a smart contract for the will that says, when I die, distribute my money, whatever I have in this wallet, distribute it to this wallet and this wallet and this wallet, and those are your three children or whatever, and don't distribute it to any other wallets, then that's it. That's the contract. And then when you die, it will automatically send it to those people. And it's, it's done. There's no lawyer needed to interpret. You don't need to go in front of a judge and discuss who gets what. None of that. You just have a smart contract written in code. And then that money, for example, could go to your three children. And you say, I don't want to give it to anybody else. And that's it. And it's done. Um, so that would be an example. Lots of 
examples like that. So this is a good example. You say when you run a will or some kind of a um, living trust or one of those things, uh, you know, you, have, you end up with a binder with all kinds of provisions and all that stuff and what happens. But so the, the smart contract takes care of that automatically. So it doesn't need to go to an attorney to interpret what was written years ago by another attorney. No, exactly. That's the point. Okay. So that's what the code handles. And right. obviously the smart contract applies like right now, you can uh, like house, like buying a house, the title of the house, any kind of mm -hmm. agreement, purchasing, anything that is basically requires some kind of uh, agreement or purchasing any contract, like you said, between two people, two companies, or a number of people, whatever, could be basically in the blockchain. And that also makes sure that it's not uh, altered in any way because the block is basically ensuring the, uh, um, uh, the fact that it's going to be intact, basically, from the moment. The... The blocks are permanent, right? So you can't go back and change them, basically. Um, and that's there's good and bad to that. But the good is that once you have something on the say Bitcoin blockchain or Ethereum or whatever you're using, it's permanent. You can't go back and change it. Mm -hmm. um, and so no matter how much someone might want to, they can't. There, there's there's nothing they can do about it. And so that's why smart contracts are just much more efficient. Right. than a lawyer or any other type of person trying to interpret what a contract might say. Where do you see blockchain um, growing faster in the in the next few months? I mean, we... Few months or a few years? Months and years, both. I mean, right now, I know that uh, banking institutions, investment institutions, and mostly in the financial world, they're already starting to use some of the smart contracts. Um, I'm not aware of... Um, home builders, realtors, and things like that, or title companies still using them. Um, so uh, I guess you buy a car, do you have a smart contract at some point, or are you going to have you a could, title? Right, you could. Um, you know, the, it's the, complicated because obviously you're dealing, there's the, the theory and then there's the practical. And the truth is that all of this stuff right now is run through the government, right? right? So, so we don't have... We didn't the the founding fathers didn't have a decentralized trust mechanism. So they basically said the government's job, mm -hmm. one of the main things their job is, is to protect your property rights. Um, and so that's why we have all types of uh, government workers whose entire job is to deal with property rights, whether it be a house, a car, anything that people own and to go over the litigation of what happens with transfers, with transactions, all these things, right? That's one of the biggest parts of a government's job, like in the United States, is protecting property rights. A lot of that can be automated. Um, I'm not saying that the government will never be involved because obviously um, one thing is saying, I have that title of my house on the on a blockchain of some sort, mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't stop. You know, if someone's squatting in your house, you still need police to come in in there and kick them out. So obviously, there's limits to what the digital world can do. Right. Um, but it can make things much, much, much more efficient than they are now. Like for example. Um tax returns and things like that. Yeah, well, that's probably way down the line. Not going to happen anytime soon. I mean, the tax code is so complicated. And now, I mean, every... every yeah, but that's it's not complicated by accident. Well, yeah. It's complicated on purpose. Well, it's, it's complicated, complicated because every government or every, every political party or every president adds another layer of 
exceptions and conditions and caveats right. and this and that and all that stuff. And then we have a tax code that is huge now. And even you talk to different professional accountants that are all of them very experienced and they all, like you said, interpret taxes different ways, you know, so, or the application of taxes. If so, you're asking me when the t U.S. tax code will be a set of rules coded, uh, I have maybe never. I mean, honestly, because that's up to the government. So, you know, when you, the, the, the challenge with like smart contracts is, um, the government side of things, right? Smart smart contracts work. They're here. They work. You're right. But the, the problem is the, is the government. The side whole thing of we're trying to do is decentralize, basically stuff. You know, uh, right. uh, take it away from the from being centralized with any government. And we're in the number one country in the world, basically. But you, you go to other countries and there's a lot of corruption and shit like that. So you want to have things that are decentralized. That a, a person you have a contract and I go with a person in Venezuela from all countries and it's a smart contract. I can trust that that contract is legit if he's basically in a blockchain. Right. In that case, Whereas if, he's something you would, that the government if you're is, living in Venezuela with the Venezuelan government, exactly. you would much rather use a smart contract exactly. than have to rely on the Venezuelan government to help you. Right. Right. So in That's the U.S., we're in a different predicament. Right. Because uh, the U.S. government still, they're, they're not perfect, but they still do a pretty good job of protecting property rights. Now, it might not be efficient. It might not be the best way to do it, but at least... For the most part, they get the job done. Right. Um, but smart contracts are just one thing. I mean, mm -hmm. that's it's a it's definitely a big thing, but it's just one thing that um, blockchain okay. lets you do. All right. So let's go into the uh, the currency, which is the the more popular application of the of the blockchain, meaning cryptocurrency, basically. So, um, as far as uh, cryptocurrency, everybody knows already. Bitcoin is the most commonly referred to and in fact is becoming almost like the uh the kleenex of uh you know cryptocurrencies everybody says crypto is bitcoin and there's like thousands of different uh coins out there or cryptocurrencies out there um full disclosure i own some ethereum which is probably the second largest one and, and you own some some bitcoin so uh, i own bitcoin and ethereum you own both? Okay, I only I only have uh, Ethereum and then a couple of other minor ones that are so small that I don't even remember their names. I think Neo or something else. But regardless, I went into that years ago and it's like a side little thing and uh, I don't even look at it that much as far as what it's doing now. But anyways, with that said, um, what makes Bitcoin the leader of the pack as far as crypto? Is it that it was first or is it that it's different, better, unique? Why, when people, um, like, just when people refer to tissues, they say Kleenex. Why, when people refer to crypto, they say Bitcoin? A um, few reasons. Um, yes, it was first. It was the first major one. There were others. There was BitGold, um, which was by Nick Zabo. That didn't work. Um, a lot of people think Nick Zabo is Satoshi Nakamoto, um, mm. that he made it pseudonymously. Um, there's other people. Anyways, I'm not going to get into who Satoshi might be. But anyways, um, it wasn't the first first, but it was the first one that really worked um, because uh, Satoshi figured out some things that weren't figured out before. And it finally worked and it was scalable and it the, the, the consensus algorithm that it used was the best up to that point and still... It still probably is today. Um, it depends who you ask. But the reason why Bitcoin is the biggest is, yes, it was first. Um, 
it has the it's the largest by market cap um and so network effects matter and so when you have a coin like bitcoin that has so many people already bought into it um it's still volatile but compared to most other coins it's actually relatively stable um it has probably the most adoption out of any other coin it, it, bitcoin and ethereum are the two largest um and all the others are much smaller um and so those two have the most adoption out of anything and the most recognition by um other institutions too so let me back up a little bit and you it say, has a very fanatic uh fan base right yeah it, that's that's definitely true i mean some people just swore by bitcoin and they that's the only thing they recognize but let me back up a little bit you say that what was the name of the uh creator of bitcoin satoshi nakamoto okay this is the name that circle is there that people think it could be a pseudonym or it could be uh true or not or I it's mean, no it's it's a pseudonym um nobody knows who it is could be one person could be a group of people right, right. there's rumors people think you know you can go online and look up right so there, there's so, people who it probably is but we'll never know for sure and that's not the point the point of it is that it's it doesn't matter who made it right no that's my point so so how does a person decide okay well we have all these what we call fiat currencies the dollars the euros and all these other currencies and then i'm going to, I'm going to create this other um decentralized currency that is in the blockchain basically and they write the code and they decide in the case of bitcoin like you said it's a limited is the largest but it still is limited so it's limited to 21 oh the amount of the amount of bitcoins coins 21 million 21 million bitcoins yeah <coughs> excuse me so for one there are no such thing as physical bitcoins it's all digital currency because i mean no the reason i'm saying that because some people think that the bitcoin is like a little gold thing or something because you see all these no all these pictures with a b and all that stuff like it looks like yeah this, people uh, make artistic renderings but no there's no coin it's right just a so it's just a number on a computer it's a number in a database basically right so so based on that um I know you know this, but how does a person say, I'm going to create my own currency or a currency that is going to be decentralized, it's going to be digital, I'm going to make only 21 million of them, and I'm going to hope that people... How did Satoshi do it? Yeah, how did it start? Well, like I said, this isn't this isn't something new. It wasn't like Satoshi was the first person to ever think of this. They were they've been working on this since the seventies and eighties, since the beginning of computing. Um, and then in the nineties, it really grew. And this is when um, the reason why some people think Nick Zabo is the creator is because he's been working on that since the nineties, basically. And he created BitGold, um, which was supposed to be like digital gold. Mm -hmm. um, and many people say BitGold BitGold was the precursor to Bitcoin because it's very similar how it's built. It's just that Bitcoin figured out some things that Zabo hadn't figured out in Bitgold. Um, so it wasn't new. It wasn't a new idea. It's just that nobody had done it successfully. And Satoshi Nakamoto was the first one to do it successfully, I guess is the point. So what does that mean successfully? That people adopted it? That people bought into it? Yes, that the I mean, consensus Bitcoin, algorithm he that started, he made. How much was the Bitcoin worth when he started? I mean, when he says at the beginning, I yeah. mean, it was like pennies, a penny, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. worth nothing. I mean, basically, you say, hey, I created this cryptocurrency. It's called it's called Bitcoin. And um, uh, here it is. I, we're going to make 21 million. But he didn't. The Bitcoin is mined. It's not like the, the Treasury Department that is printing money. It's basically 
it needs to be um, mined, which it's not very constant that it's not very clear what that means. Because he kept so, it at 21 million, but there was so, no 21 million Bitcoins made or created right, there's still right away. Right, exactly. Um, so so uh, explain a little bit if you can. The um, mining part? I mean, the mining... Um, Mining, so there's 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 a thing called, there's different ways that you can run a blockchain. Um, the first original way that Bitcoin did is called proof of work. And this is what um, most cryptocurrencies use. There are some that claim to use other methods, but a lot of them end up kind of not being true. I'm not going to get into that, but um, proof of work. The other big um, uh, way is is proof of stake. This is what Ethereum is trying to do. So Ethereum is on proof of work. Ethereum 2.0 is going to launch at some point. They've been working on it for a few years. It'll probably launch, if I had to guess, probably next year, 2021. Um, and then they're going to move over to proof of stake, which is a different... Um, it's, it's, it's a, these are verification mechanisms, basically. Well, I mean, is so, there an easy way to separate or define one and the other? Yeah. So, or which so, one is better? So proof of work, uh, the, this is where Bitcoin gets criticism because I think they said something like, um, the amount of energy used to run Bitcoin is more than like the entire country of Austria or something like that in 2019. Um, what does that mean? I'm on energy. Basically, you have all these computers running around the world, uh -huh. um, and the energy they used to run the Bitcoin blockchain was more energy than the entire country of Austria used in 2019. Wow. So the argument is that proof of work is um, inefficient, basically. And then especially if you scale it, keep in mind, Bitcoin is not that large yet. If you scale it to say it is a true global currency mm -hmm. that everybody in the world uses, that the amount of energy needed to run that is going to be massive. And those computers around the world are from actual normal people that have... Comp or yes and no. I mean, in the beginning, yes. In the beginning, it right, was I very much... People were mining... Yeah, yeah. In um, the beginning, yeah. In the beginning, uh, I used to mine Bitcoin on my computer years ago. But nowadays, it's not efficient to do it on like a normal computer. You have what's called ASICs now, mm -hmm. which are application-specific uh, something chips that are basically um, specific. Uh, I wouldn't even call them a computer as we know, but basically specific uh, chips that are made to create or to mine Bitcoin. So they're much more efficient, basically. Right. So basically, you have a computer that is churning constantly 24-7 all the time, yeah. connected to it's multiple... It's verifying the transactions. Right. It's basically part of the chain, part yes. of the verification And so process. how proof-of-work works is, um, in simple terms, you have these computers around the world that are solving math problems. Um, and these math problems are how they... Uh, verify the transactions on the chain. And then once you have a consensus of um, verification, mm -hmm. then that block 
basically becomes permanent and it's on the chain. And once that block gets out of the chain, it's there forever. There's no removing it. Okay. Um, and the reason they do this is because there's a thing called block rewards. And so why they call it mining Bitcoin is because it's like mining gold, right? You spend a lot of work to dig down and mine, mm -hmm. but then the reward is you get gold at the end of it. And so, so you get funny. rewarded with Bitcoin for being a miner, for dedicating resources right. uh, to, to verifying transactions. The reward is you get Bitcoin. How basically. big is that reward? Uh, what do you is mean? It, well, I mean, if I'm dedicating a computer for a whole year to basically be part of the um, uh, of the verification network or walk, um, uh, is there something? I mean, I'm thinking like almost like a dividend, like like you hold a stock. Yeah, I mean, back in the day, you could get uh, you could get a thousand Bitcoin. Nowadays, that doesn't happen anymore. Well, that's my point. Do you get rewarded in? exchange to dollar value or how does that work no you get rewarded in bitcoin no i understand but i mean uh, one bitcoin like you said uh, 20 years ago or 15 years ago if you existed no bitcoin started 2009 2009 okay well we're 11 years so one bitcoin 10 years ago is definitely not the same as one bitcoin today yeah no no the block rewards back in the day i mean i don't know i know it used to be in the thousands mm -hmm. right so you could you could make thousands of bitcoin a year um mining back in the day but right. now there's the supply is much 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 less so now you don't get that at all okay that's why people used to mine with like their own computers now you would lose money like if you just started mining bitcoin on this computer it's not efficient you wouldn't make money right it would cost you more in energy than it would in electricity basically to run the computer 24 seven than it would than you would make in Bitcoin. Right. So that's why they have the ASICs now. They right. have special computers made for mining Bitcoin. Who makes those computers? Uh, you can buy them, you can look it up. There's companies that make them. So they basically, like, they it's designed- not like a, It's not like you go buy a Dell or something and then- No, say, no, okay. back in the day, yes. Back in the day, I used to run on my gaming computer, but now you can't do that anymore. It's okay. not efficient. So you can go. So you have to invest by a specific computer that yeah, is just for just, that. You can, anybody, you can Google Bitcoin ASIC, ASIC, you'll find them. Companies sell them. Okay. Yeah. And you buy the computer and normally, I don't know, how much are those computers? Ah, it depends on the power. But average, I mean. Uh, uh, you can be, I think the cheapest is probably, uh, I don't know, a thousand bucks. The most expensive, you can buy tens of thousands if you want to. Okay. So let's say you buy one of $5,000 computer. Do you amortize that expense in one year or does it take several years? I don't know now. I haven't looked at it okay. in a while. I'm just kind of curious to see what um, When I was doing it, I think it was like, th um, it was like a few months to make your money back. Um, now, I had already owned the gaming computer, so it was like right, a sunk yeah, cost yeah. anyways. But yeah, I remember I calculated it was like three months. I was mining Bitcoin and Ethereum back in the day. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's... It's now, so so you want to get into like the negatives of Bitcoin? Yeah, well, first I was kind of curious about the process. Like you said, like it's so decentralized that everybody can kind of help mine or basically, like you said, digging gold, digging, creating Bitcoin by donating or creating a platform that is part of the part of the network verification blockchain and all that. So, 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 so the solution is... But you said that Ethereum is going to the... Uh, proof of stake. Proof of stake. So the reason they're going to proof of stake is because there are problems with proof of work. Um, one, obviously it takes a lot of energy. Um, two, in theory, 
th th this is where and this is where my level of uh, knowledge becomes limited. And there are people who are much, much smarter than me. If you want to get really in depth, um, Vitalik Buterin, who's the founder of Ethereum, did an interview on Lex Friedman's podcast, and he gets very technical and in depth on a lot of the explanations. Um, and I highly recommend it. It's a great listen. Um, but anyways, there's different uh, opinions and schools of thought in in the uh, crypto community, if you want to call it that. And um, some people think proof of work is the best option. Some people think proof of stake is better. There's other things. There's delegated proof of stake. There's there's different schools of thought. But I think I think proof of stake, if it works as Vitalik and the Ethereum people th are hoping it will work, um, I think it'll probably be better. Okay, so but but let me let me explain. So 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 the challenge with proof of work is that. Um, like I said, it takes a lot of energy and then also, um, it can be, it, it leaves Bitcoin susceptible to manipulation should someone, um, get enough computing power. Um, and this is kind of happening. Um, not the manipulation part, but... I forget the exact estimates, but I think 20 something percent of all Bitcoin um, um, transactions are running through Chinese companies mm -hmm. um, that just have massive, massive server warehouses, not server warehouses, mining warehouses. Um, and at this point, I think around 20, 25 percent is being run through well, these Chinese exactly. warehouses. That was uh, just to make a point when you said that the average computer. You know, before you may have, let's just throw a number, let's say you have 10,000 computers, 10,000 people running in their little desktops, whatever, mining Bitcoin. Now you need a special computer and all that stuff, which is basically a money issue. Basically, you the barrier of entry is based on how much computer power you can buy. So I'm thinking, okay, well, we know major, uh, obviously Chinese companies can do that. I mean, Google has huge servers. Why isn't Google or Amazon Web Services or these companies that have a tremendous amount of web power or uh, uh, computer power and server power because they're hosting all the major platforms in the US and major websites, banks, this and that. What prevents them from basically be mining Bitcoin? And well, because they don't have ASICs. They don't, they, I mean, uh, well, well, they can get them. I mean, sure, but they're going to spend a lot of money. The, the servers Amazon has now wouldn't work. Right. It wouldn't be efficient, basically. Right. There are different types of servers for different things understood. But a so, yeah, I mean, like Amazon, could they, in theory, go and buy $10 yeah. billion dollars worth of I mean, they already have these infrastructure. They, have the, they sure. have the warehouses that are running up freaking freezing temperatures. Yeah, so there are some companies that do this. Um, I forget the name of one, but, yeah, there are some companies that do this, that that just, I mean, their whole company is right. literally, it's we just, basically a mining just company. mine tons of Bitcoin right. or Ethereum or other, other things. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so okay, let's go back to the... Chinese, uh, the, the issue that you're yeah. So, about. so that's that's basically uh, a vulnerability. Um, Bitcoin has never been hacked in terms of um, uh, no one has ever been able to reverse a transaction on Bitcoin's blockchain, um, and that's the whole thing. That people, the, there's a thing called a fifty-one percent attack, mm -hmm. which is if you were to take over fifty-one percent of the uh, uh, computing power for Bitcoin that you could um, manipulate, manipulate or yeah. basically take over. Yeah. Now, 
that would be a massive amount of computing well, power. How, how We're talking, you would need uh, billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of computing power um, and, uh, and a place to do it. And I mean, it's not a, a small feat, right? The only type, the only, basically it's gotten to the point where it would, the only people who could do it are governments. That's it. I mean, I a government, and but that's why but the risk they, is: could the Chinese government do it? Well, I mean, you see the whole reason to decentralize currency to take it away from the government's power, and now the government is the only one who can basically ruin it or hack it. It could now. If Bitcoin gets larger and larger, then it becomes more and more unfeasible to do it. Um, so why is proof of stake better in theory? Well, because proof of stake works based on ownership. And so what you proof of stake verifies transactions. Why it's called stake is because let's say you have um, whatever, $100,000 worth of Ethereum. Um, and you, in the same way you have like a savings account, you're like, well, I'm not using this Ethereum. I'm just going to, I'm just going to leave it there. Well, yeah. you can stake it basically. And this means that your Ethereum is locked for a certain t amount of time, but then um, it's you get interest, basically. You, you get rewarded. In the same way you get rewarded for mining, you get rewarded for staking. So the best way I kind of compare it is like if you have a savings account or if you have like a CD or something, mm -hmm. or you lock your money up right. with a bank, but right. then they pay you interest. Mm -hmm. Very similar. So you lock your money with Ethereum, and then they use all of that as, as verification basically. Um, and so the benefit of that is the way to, the only way to uh, do a 51% attack is you'd have to own 51% of all Ethereum in the world. And if Ethereum keeps getting larger, and let's say 20 years down the line, Ethereum um, is a thing that is, is, well, we can get into what Ethereum can be used for, but if it does become what many think it will, which is like this underlying protocol for a lot of the world's um, functions, whether it be finance, um, smart contracts, whatever, the the it would be worth trillions of dollars, many trillions. And so the only way to get a fifty one percent attack would you would have to somehow own fifty one percent of that trillions of dollars. Right. So so it'd be single, very very difficult. You wanted to have a stakeholder with fifty one percent of Ethereum. Right. To be able to do that, which nobody is going to. Right. It would be. There's no such thing as an unhackable system. Right. But it would be incredibly. Plus, just the fact of someone <clears throat> buying trillions worth of Ethereum trying to do this would cause it to go up even more. Right. The price the, because the, they would be sucking all the supply out and the uh, demand would go up even further. So okay. that's why proof of stake in theory is better. The challenge with proof of stake is that it does become more centralized and it certainly helps the wealthier much more. And large institutions like a bank or a wealthy individual could have a ton of Ethereum staked. Mm -hmm. That's the argument against it. I think that's a shitty argument because the truth is no matter what monetary system you yeah, use, that's always gonna be the, the rich are always going to be more right. advantaged. Yeah. I don't, there's no way you can I get mean, around people that. People are by, by Ethereum just when they have some kind of disposable income or something, it's not going to be the person that is, I mean, you're living paycheck to paycheck. Obviously, I recommend that you don't even touch any crypto. I mean, that's just... No, I'm talking like down the road. I'm right. talking, let's look at Ethereum 30 years from now. Okay, yeah, either um, way, yeah, but... 
But even then, there's no monetary system you're going to make where the rich aren't at an advantage. That's just how capitalism works. I mean, uh, right. So, so my next logical question would be why doesn't can Bitcoin use the proof of stake? Method? Because they don't want to. They don't want to, but they no. could, but they don't want they to. Could. They're happy with their system. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So let me back up a little bit. We said before that um, Bitcoin, uh, the total number of Bitcoins to be issued, which is not there yet, is 21 million. Uh, and that started in 2009, like you said. Where are we now? Uh, Approximately. I think around 18 million. Okay. So so basically, we're at the last stretch. I mean, we're done basically. Yeah, 2040. Oh, is there's a timeline for that? Yeah. Oh, okay. So uh, that's the question. I mean, you said that they're being mined by all this network of people, but how so, do they control that? So how much do they mine each year? Yeah, so uh, it's, it's it was set up from the beginning. Okay, so, so that was Satoshi set it up. Okay. So there's the block rewards. The, this is, if people have ever heard of the halving, Bitcoin halving, mm -hmm. it's basically halving the block rewards. So back in the day, the block rewards were way, way more. And now they keep going in half and half. We just had a halving recently. Well, um, I read, I read, I'm not an expert, but I just read that it's down from 1800 to 900. Yeah. Which is half of the yeah. original. But it started like with, um, oh, I mean, hundreds of thousands. Oh, really? That much? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, back, I mean, there's like famous, like the, I mean, I mean, yeah, Bitcoin used to be pennies and then few dollars. So and, I mean, right yeah. now we're at 900 per year. Is that what it is? Or no, it's per block per block. Yeah. Okay. And then eventually it'd be 450, um, 225, and then half and half and half until basically in 2025, you said 2040, 2040 will be out. The 21 million Bitcoins will be done. And yeah. then limited supply means the demand, when the demand increases, the price increases. So it's the opposite of fiat currencies. Right. That's fiat my, currencies that are inflationary. Bitcoin is deflationary. All right. So let's elaborate a little more. Let's go a little more expansion into that. Fiat currencies, as we, uh, uh, and this is why I started the podcast with, with the Fed and all the printing money that we're doing now. Um, and to make a little bit more of history, um, most of the country's fiat currencies used to be some, somehow attached to the to the to gold, which is another thing that we may discuss. Uh, so, in other words, the the country's ownership or possession of gold based on the value of gold, you cannot trade with gold, at least in modern times. Back in the days, people used to trade with gold, but now you don't have, you have the gold in a federal reserve safe or whatever, and then you will make dollars that are based on the gold. At some point, Nixon basically said, we're not going to be attached to gold anymore, and then said, dollar and gold are separate. And, and that I just opened a whole kind of worms for it. I wasn't, I mean, once the U.S. did it, all the other countries did it as well. So now we're at the opposite extreme where the government is just printing money when they need it, which basically is devaluating the, uh, the dollar or any currency, European countries, euros. Chinese have been doing that forever, so it's nothing new to them. But basically, you start printing money just because you need it, which means the... Uh, the famous universal basic income and all that stuff that was, where are you going to get the money from to, to, to fund the universal basic income and all this Andrew Yang, the candy that was justifying where the money is kind of, now it doesn't really matter. I mean, the government is just printing money out of their, the Fed. So, so that's basically what the dollar is doing. Now, 
the Bitcoin is the opposite. Bitcoin, you have 21, 21 million Bitcoins, and that's it. There's no government that's going to say, oh, we need a stimulus package. Let's print another 2 million Bitcoins. That's never going to happen. So that currency being limited, that means that um, the value of the Bitcoin may go up exponentially. Um, and you say it's deflationary because as opposed to the dollar, which is inflationary or any other fiat currency, basically, which right now we're, we're seeing that. We haven't seen it yet, but it will be. The, the purchasing power of people with their dollars will, will decrease. Not as, will. Is. Huh? Hmm? Not will. Is. I mean, well, this year, well, inflation yeah. estimates, real inflation, sure. is like six over six percent. Right, right. Well, I mean, I mean, it's uh, it will decrease even more as a result of this uh, pandemic effect that we have now, where we're just printing like so far. I think we've done like six trillion. I think so far, and we're talking talking about two trillion package that I don't know when Congress uh, or the House or whatever will pass it, but we're basically printing printing trillions of dollars that we don't have anything to back it up with. You know, so so that will create a huge deflation or, or sorry, inflation for the dollar. Um, and people don't realize that their buying power is going to be decreased. You're going to say you, you're going to get this maybe this two hundred dollar check and you say, OK, it's great. But before with those two hundred bucks, you were able to buy a certain amount of things. Now you're going to buy only half of the things. And a lot of people just say, oh, well, the cost of living, yeah, that's inflation. That's basically what it means. It means that. Things that you were normally able to buy before, you will not be able to afford now. Even if you before with a certain salary were able to buy your house, if you were to buy your house today, it's not that the house has appreciated. The problem is that the house has inflated. And now with your salary, you cannot afford your house anymore like you did 10 years ago. And that's actually a result of inflation. It's like a hidden tax, basically. So um, based on that, um, Bitcoin on uh, what is the limit for Ethereum then? Is that also yeah? There's a limit. I don't remember. Okay, but it's the same system, right? I yeah. mean, there's a limited number. Is that the same for all cryptocurrencies? Pretty much. I approximately. I mean, uh, is that for a lot of them? Yeah. I mean, I don't. I'm not. I don't really pay attention to a lot of them. I right. mean, I mean, I think ultimately you'll probably have. At most, maybe four or five major ones left. Like, mm -hmm. if we're talking, like, let's fast forward 30 years, you'll right. probably have, like, it's four or five, maybe. Right. I think, I think, again, I'm just saying what is the most likely outcome. I'm not saying this will 100% happen. I, if I had to guess, I think Bitcoin and Ethereum will be the main ones. I think Bitcoin will be the primary store of value and that Ethereum will be used for all of the decentralized applications. Um, and then the other ones, I think you'll probably have like maybe Monero or Zcash, um, for privacy, um, cause those are the ones that they operate differently and how they use, how they, um, um, execute their transactions in, in that you can do things anonymously, uh, which Bitcoin and Ethereum are not anonymous. You can see who, what wallets are doing what basically, mm -hmm. and you can figure right. out who owns a wallet. Right. Um, so I think if I had to guess, there will probably be at least three Bitcoin, Ethereum and a privacy coin, and then maybe one or two other big ones. I don't know, but that would, that would be my guess. We won't have 3000 cryptocurrencies. Most of them, 99% or more will fail. Yeah. Okay. So with that said, and I look at Bitcoin and Ethereum and 
like those two specifically and gold and obviously a bunch of stocks on a daily basis and uh what makes like traditionally you say okay when uh, like stocks and bonds are in different directions and and um you know gold is uh, uh like the safe investment against inflation and all that so uh, where do you position cryptocurrencies or bitcoin specifically or bitcoin ethereum in the spectrum of what possibilities so people can put their money like we said i mean right now there's little places so if people yeah, I think, I think decide to buy bitcoin why would you do it is it for safety is it as an investment is well, it if you're buying bitcoin now um you have to buy it looking at it as a risk asset mm-hmm because um, that's what it is, right? If you're buying Bitcoin, you are basically betting that if you're buying for the long term, if you're trading it different, but if you're like, I'm going to buy Bitcoin and hold it for at least 10 years or longer, your bet is that fiat currencies will go down in value tremendously and will continue to go down and that Bitcoin will be adopted um, as a hedge against that in the short term and then maybe potentially be actually used as a primary currency in many places around the world in the future. That's what you're betting if you're buying Bitcoin. Um, now, the odds of that happening are not that high. I mean, I if I were to put a percentage, th- there's different things. Will Bitcoin stick around as a hedge? Uh, uh, like, I, I think the most likely outcome is Bitcoin will become digital gold. Um, meaning that it will exist in uh, tangent to fiat currencies, at least for a long time. Right. Um, the odds of Bitcoin actually becoming like the global currency, I don't know. I mean, that's very complicated because that's get that gets political because you have to have governments willing to give up their own currencies in favor of exactly. Bitcoin. So, so that's a different question. I think the most likely, and we're ta- and we're looking at timelines too. Could that happen on a hundred plus year timeline? Yeah, I think at some point it probably will happen. And maybe it won't be Bitcoin. Maybe it'll be a different coin. But I think at some point in the next hundred plus years, um, crypto, a cryptocurrency will become the global uh, primary currency. And that will happen just because fiat currencies don't last forever and they'll probably collapse and then people will turn to Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency. All right. Um, what I think the more likely outcome in the next, like say 10, 20 years is, is that Bitcoin will be digital gold and that you could see Bitcoin achieve a mark cap similar to gold in the trillions of dollars, which would mean that it, it goes up at least another 10 X from here. So that's good because I was going to segue into this question. Um, traditionally, people that want to fight inflation and the devaluation of their local currency, whichever country they live in, they try to invest in commodities and some precious metals like gold, silver, maybe others. Um, what is your conversation or your thinking for the person that says, okay, I want to protect myself? And again, we live in the U.S., which is, I mean, the dollar is going to be always the uh, default, I mean, the de facto currency for all transactions for a long time. But let's say you live in a country that is not like Argentina, Venezuela, or even some European countries. Yeah, but even if you live in the U.S., I mean... Yeah, okay, yeah, in the U.S., but I'm just giving you more extreme cases of today versus the U.S. maybe in the future. But so, so if you have the option to say, I want to... Um, protect myself 
what do I do? Do I go into Bitcoin or gold or both or why one versus the other? Like there's a lot of people that we know that are hardcore defenders of gold investments and they don't like cryptocurrencies at all. And there's people that swear by crypto, but they say gold is is not an option. So, so there's two there's two th answers. If you live in like Venezuela, for example, where we can see exactly what the people of Venezuela are doing, they are using US dollars and they're using Bitcoin. Um, so if you live in a country where your currency isn't worth anything, the US dollar is still very valuable, right? The US dollar is still the world's reserve currency. So even if it might be inflationary and maybe over the next coming decades, it's going to have some turbulence. As of right now, it's still a very good option if you don't have a good currency in your country. And so that's why uh, you see in a lot of these countries, people want US dollars, but now they also want Bitcoin. Um, in Venezuela, they, there is quite a bit of Bitcoin. Argentina, there's Bitcoin. Nigeria, people use Bitcoin um, for actual transactions. Um, now, in the U.S., if you're looking... So, first of all, I own gold and Bitcoin. Um, so, I own both. Uh, I think this idea that you only have one or the other. Gold is good, right? The, here's the primary argument between Bitcoin and gold. Um, why, why, what's the pro-Bitcoin versus gold argument? Well... Um, what does gold do and why do people buy gold? Well, gold is not a fixed supply, but it's pretty fixed, right? Um, the only way to get more gold is to mine it and to mine gold is very expensive and takes a lot. So you're not all of a sudden going to see the supply of gold go up by 10% in one year. Like you might have a fiat go up, right? I mean, when, when people dig gold, we're talking annually they might add like half a percent to the supply uh, that's the explanation uh, just to make a little point that's the explanation that we just <laughs> said about the government printing money back in the days if if there was a crisis like this one or the one that we had in 2008-9 the government could not just say hey we're gonna mine more gold and send it to everybody right. because that's it, it was just not possible so right. therefore they could not send money because money and gold were together money was just a representation it's a note that's attached to the gold once you separate that basically collateral that valuates your dollar, then now we're just printing money that is not related to anything and just printing money just for the heck of it. So right. that's exactly the point that you're making. Right. And so the benefit of gold is that um, it has a nearly fixed supply. And even when it goes up, it's not like the supply is going up that much. Um, and it's just been used forever i mean mm -hmm. it's been used for thousands of years uh it's what you might call a lindy uh in, yeah. in those circles right so gold's value isn't going anywhere i own gold too you can look at the price of gold it's been a phenomenal hedge against inflation you can look at the price of gold in the early 1900s uh versus the dollar and look at it today and it's pretty much matched inflation so as as inflation goes up your gold value goes up too um in fact one of the things uh nick zabo has a blog um that is really good and one of the things that he wrote when he was researching that was fascinating is that he said um if you adjusted for inflation, the pay that the Roman soldiers were getting back in Rome, in the, in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, um, that he was able to kind of calculate how much gold they were getting paid. Um, and it, when you adjusted it out, it was the exact 
almost to the thousand like dollars that soldiers get paid today. We're talking like normal soldiers right. in America today. Like that is how good gold is as a hedge against inflation. They don't get paid much. I'll tell you that. No, they don't get paid a lot, but it was basically the same amount. Yeah. Um, and so that was pretty fascinating. Um, so gold works great. Where does gold fall short? Well, uh, you have to store it and storing it costs money. You have to have it in big bank vaults, big vein, bank vaults with men with guns guarding it or else people are going to come and try to steal it. Um, if you want to transport it, you know, you need to guard a truck or something. It's not that cheap to transport. You're a high value target. It's a physical asset. So it's literally, has, it's, it comes with all the risks. Of it's not physical easily asset. divisible. Um, so if you want to pay somebody in gold, especially for smaller day-to-day -day transactions, it's not really practical. So those are the problems with gold. The reason, the, th the thing that Bitcoin solves in that is that Bitcoin is digital, so the, you don't need physical storage, you don't need physical transportation. Um, it's infinitely divisible. It's just numbers on a computer. You don't need to cut little pieces of gold off, right, to pay for your coffee. Mm -hmm. It's infinitely divisible. Um, so it solves a lot of those problems. Um, the other problem with gold is that it ends up becoming centralized itself because most people don't want to own physical gold because it's a pain in the ass. So they end up buying into gold trusts, but then ultimately a trust is what you're trusting that uh, organization, that company, right. um, that they actually do have the gold you say. So that's which they those, also have fees because of the research you said they, they charge have to store fees. they have to this all that stuff. So th those are the problems with gold. Right. Bitcoin basically solves all those problems. That's why I refer to it as digital gold. The biggest argument against Bitcoin is just that it's new. Bitcoin is 11 years old. Gold is thousands of years old. So gold has stood the test of time. Bitcoin has not yet. It hasn't had the chance right. yet. So that's the biggest argument against Bitcoin. It just hasn't been around that long and we don't know. Um, the other argument against Bitcoin is that it could be replaced by another cryptocurrency um, that you could, in theory, anybody can go and just fork Bitcoin, make their own Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And if they do it better, then you have your own. All right. So so those are the two arguments. Uh, those are good. Good. I like I said, I own both. Right. I think gold I is think, good. I think diversification I think is always is Bitcoin always good. is good. As of right now, Bitcoin is more of a risk asset because it's newer and just pure market cap. The global market cap of gold is seven, eight trillion. I think the market cap of Bitcoin, I think, is like 400 billion right now. So just in terms of that, Bitcoin's much more volatile much more and that, it's yeah. it's it's a risk asset. Um, but in theory, I think gold could I'm sorry, Bitcoin could replace gold or at least be another option next to gold. So one final question from me regarding the crypto. I think we have a couple more topics I wanted to get to quickly. Um, what prevents governments from creating crypto dollars? Or Nothing. They probably will. Basically, um, as a kind of digital currency. That yeah, they say I mean, the Fed has already talked about digital dollars. Um, I think in Europe, they're going to do the same thing with the euro. But is it going to be attached or subject to the same principles of cryptocurrency saying we're going to have this limit? 
probably not. Right. I mean, I mean, no, digital so, dollars. I mean, what does that mean compared to the current dollar? If basically it's just, I mean, right now, I mean, most of the transactions are digital. I mean, you make transactions without actually physical money in your hands. You can transfer money, you can receive money, right. you can do everything. You never see the money. You basically so it's so digital, so to speak. So, uh, to me, is the 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 conversion to digital dollars. I don't understand it versus what we're doing now. Um, I mean, if they were doing crypto dollars, that the government says, okay, we're gonna print X amount, like 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 Bitcoin, say we're gonna print twenty trillion dollars, which is our, uh, that's what we have, and then we're just gonna let the, the money appreciate, but it's limited to basically yeah. the the amount that we have. Yeah, they're not gonna do that. I mean, maybe I mean, no, they're not doing that. They're well, obviously gonna, because it's not convenient. Then they trap themselves into a situation where they cannot. I mean, they might, I don't know. I can't speculate what's going to happen because the, again, this, a lot of this gets into, um, your beliefs around money. I mean, some people subscribe to the modern monetary theory, right? MMT. And mm -hmm. that is the idea that we can just print money and that that will solve a lot of the problems. And there are economists and very famous people who believe in this stuff, right? Paul Kruger, um, I forget, there's a woman at, um, what university is she at? I forget that she's a big vocal, I mean, there are economists who are big believers mm -hmm. in modern monetary theory, which says that if you're the United States and you're the global superpower that you can just print money forever and you're not really gonna have consequences and that in fact, printing money is an excellent solution. Um, I don't believe in that. A lot of people don't believe in that, but there are people who do. And the current Fed policy believes in that right now. Will the Fed change at some well, point? Well, they did it before. They just do it now because it's more convenient. Right. Will they change at some point? Maybe. I can't predict what politicians are going to do. Um, but at least in the near future, they're definitely not going to change their ways. They're going to just keep doing mon modern monetary theory. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they're going to make digital dollars probably, but it's it's going to be no different than fiat. It's going to be digital fiat. Right. All right. So, well, the bottom line is that cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, Ethereum, as, as we kind of no, I didn't get into Ethereum. Um, I think Ethereum. So Bitcoin's goal, Bitcoin is only going to be like a currency. Mm -hmm. Basically, Ethereum is not necessarily a currency. I mean, it is, but. But the currency is Ether, right? Right. It's Ether. But, but. The goal of Ethereum is not necessarily, I mean, it is and it isn't. Um, it will become valuable because it's, it's, it, the, the idea of, of, of Ethereum um, is that it will be this base protocol layer for what we call decentralized apps, decentralized applications, dApps. Um, and that in the same way that when the iPhone came out and there was like the app store that all of a sudden there were a ton of apps that could be made and things that could be done that previously were impossible because now we had a computer in our pocket. Whereas before mm -hmm. when you wanted a computer, you needed like a desktop. Um, I think in that's in its own different, but it did its own way. These decentralized applications um, will there are a lot of things that will be able to be done on Ethereum that were not possible before. Right. Um, right. And that Ethereum will be the base, basically layer for all that. They call it L1 is, is layer one. Mm -hmm. um, and now there's going to be, the goal is that there will be lots of L2 and L3 applications that are built on top of this. Um, 
And so Bitcoin, that's not necessarily the goal. That's one of the reasons why in the beginning I liked Ethereum more than Bitcoin. I think Ethereum was like like cryptocurrency 2.0, if you will, you know, when it came out. Like it was a little more, a little safer than Bitcoin and also have more potential than Bitcoin down the road as far as different applications. They just have different goals. Right. Um, I mean, you know, Ethereum is really interesting because... You can get into all types of, I mean, there's lots of theories of where things could go with Ethereum. Some Mm -hmm. people think you could take Ethereum to like, uh, like, like one idea is that every company in the future is not going to issue shares anymore. They're going to issue tokens. Um, And the reason that changes things is because um now you have token holders but those token holders can for example like say ford issues a token instead of um sure a share and instead of buying shares in ford you buy tokens in ford um well if you don't like what ford is doing what ford management is doing you could fork ford and you could make your own ford um and you can make a tangential ford and then run it how you see fit Right. Like that's kind of the idea. And then the ultimate idea is they have what's in theory, what's called these DAOs, D-A-O, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, which are organizations that run based on a rule, a set of protocols and rules that are voted on by the token holders. And so the each person who owns a token, right, like say there's 100 tokens for a company. And the more tokens you own, the more votes you have, basically. And so whatever the consensus is on on that company, uh, the, the token holders, then this autonomous organization will then execute. And the, the it's almost like... Now, again, this is all in theory, right? These are things that I think are very far away. And there's a big problem of legislation that comes into this and regulation. Um, but they have this idea of decentralized autonomous organizations where people aren't even running it it's all protocols that are running the organization mm-hmm. um and then in theory you could get rid of you don't even need like public markets anymore you don't need the sec you don't need right. the new york stock exchange right. you don't need these things if every if every private company just started issuing tokens um wh- why do companies go public well, one is to exit because they want to exit. They want liquidity for the founders, for the early investors, early employees. Um, raise money to raise money too. But but the bigger reason is because when you go public, you have access to capital markets and financial tools and debt tools that you don't have as a private company. Um, but if every company just starts issuing tokens, then you can have. Uh, markets on Ethereum that provide all the same liquidity, all the same debt, all the same tools that you could get going a public company, but you don't have to go through all the regulations and go through the SEC. Um, So these are all things that in theory could be done. Now, will governments let them be done is a different question. Uh, But these are all things like, like if you're talking to, to the, uh, what they call like the cypherpunks, uh, I mean, they think that really in the future, you don't need governments, that really entire governments could be replaced by uh, protocols, basically. Because what is a government? I mean, a government is a set of laws, a set of yeah. rules. Well, we're getting too far. And forward. you have <laughs> and you could just replace those all with protocols but- in code. And so that's again. I think that's idealistic. I think they're taking out the human factor of humans like power and governments don't like to give up their power. 
Um, so I think that's very far-fetched. Maybe a uh, hundred years from now, I don't know. But in the near future, I don't think any of that's happening. But these are all things that are possible. And yeah. that's why the world is so exciting and we're still in very early days. All right, so one, one final question now. And I think, okay, so obviously we're an hour and 20 minutes or so, but uh, this is the real final question for the entire podcast, by the way, because we're not gonna get into any other topics. But uh, yeah. um, let's come down to the practicality of like, let's say I own Bitcoin and um, I want to leave the US, go to Spain and have my Bitcoin there and use it there. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you hear obviously the Bitcoin wallets and, and um, the exchanges and all that. So how do I move my Bitcoin? How, how can I be able to use my Bitcoin in another country? Let's say that a, a person in Venezuela has these savings and is fed up with their country. They say, you know what? I'm just going to move somewhere else. Um, my Venezuelan pesos or whatever they use there are worthless, but I have this Bitcoin and I want to use it in a different country. How do you move it? You don't need to move it. As well, long as you have access to your wallet, you don't need to move okay, it. Okay, so let's describe briefly without too much detail the, uh, look, what, what the wallet means, which we all know what a wallet, physical wallet means, but a crypto wallet basically. Because you need to have somebody on the other in another country that accepts um, uh, your, your currency, your Bitcoin in this case. So how does that happen? A wallet is just um, a, a, um, does the wallet, a, a, a method of, how do I describe it simply? Um, it's not a physical wallet, right? right? It's, it's, it's basically, um a thing that uh you can that has an address right and that you send things into um but the only way to take out of it is if you have a key and when you generate a wallet you get a key and you're the only person who has that key unless you give to other people or whatever but it's basically a code it's like a password um so wallets are international or you need to get a wallet like my wallet in the u.s <coughs> will be also usable yeah, Bitcoin doesn't have borders. Bitcoin is not affiliated with any government or Ethereum or any of these. I mean, it's decentralized. That's the point. What if I want to transfer, uh, let's say that you have, like you have Coinbase, for example, as your exchange. Yeah, so 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 if you use a centralized exchange to, and you keep your Bitcoin in there, that's different. Right. But that's not a wallet. So the wallet is when you take it down from the from the exchange, which is the server. Yeah, I don't pocket. recommend you keep your money in an exchange. I think that would be very stupid. You should keep your money in a wallet. But don't majority of people have the money in some kind of exchange? Like no, I think majority of people have it in a wallet. Because an exchange is that it's an exchange. But once you're like, I use an exchange to exchange dollars for Bitcoin. But once I have my Bitcoin, I send it to my wallet. I don't keep it in okay. uh, an exchange. Because this exchange is centralized, you're you're losing the whole point of Bitcoin. Right. If that exchange gets hacked, then Which you're screwed. Happened. Right, it's happened. So, but back in the days, then people used to leave the money on the exchanges. They didn't have wallets. Sure, All people the wallets came later. No, wallets have always existed. But are wallets no hackable? No, they're not hackable. Um, unless you lose your keys, right? If you give up your key to somebody, it's no different than somebody gets the oh, key to your house. Why, can the key be? Um, hacked. I mean, it's just an alphanumeric code. Yeah, but it's uh, like, can they guess it? I mean, no. I mean, not guess it, but I mean, com talking computerized. Um, no. I mean, in theory, yes. In reality, no. Okay. You would need 
no, it's not hacker. So you 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 use the exchange to uh, as you, as people use to <coughs> convert their dollars or like whatever money they have into crypto, let's say Bitcoin, and then you download it to your wallet. So you have a digital wallet, which is basically not physical. It's a digital wallet that you can only access. On, there's apps that you can use on your phone, and then you have a key. And then with that, you can travel anywhere in the world. And then um, with that wallet, um, you can, in theory, pay with Bitcoin to any, obviously, any transaction that accepts Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. What if you want to convert that Bitcoin into a local currency? Use an you exchange. Go, you go to a local exchange. Mm-hmm. Uh, or not a local, just any exchange. I mean. Well, I mean, are the exchange like, like, is Coinbase international? I mean, you go to Europe and use it? Um, I think Coinbase is mainly U.S. I don't know what right, they do. Right, so you need to find a local exchange to. Um, yeah, there's the, the there's other exchanges though. Um, so there's a thing called KYC, know your customer, that like in the U.S. Coinbase mm-hmm. uses, where you have to verify your identity before, in the same way with a bank account. There are exchanges that don't do that. They don't require that. That they'll just take your money. They don't do identity verification or anything right. like that. Um, so you could use one of those. It depends. Are you like running away from the government? No, no, I no, mean, no, no. I'm just no. I mean, I'm just basically thinking. First okay, of all, I so wouldn't use. If your worry is hiding from the government, don't use Bitcoin. No, no, it's not a hiding thing. It's just. I mean, if I if I go to another country and I want to use euros, I have two options. Either I exchange some euros here <laughs> before I leave, so I have something when I arrive, or. I wait until I arrive and I go to an exchange bank, whatever, and I exchange some of the dollars that I take with me with euros. Obviously, I can use a credit card, whatever, and all that stuff. But those are the options that I have, because crypto is crypto and it's encrypted. Um, I don't know how would that work. You know, if I if if a person has only crypto and wants to go to another country, I cannot go to chase and say i have this can you give me no you go but you can go to a crypto exchange right that's that was my question that was my question you go basically go to binance and exchange it right so you need to go to a crypto exchange and then uh, with your digital wallet transfer and other stuff and make that transaction and then um the same thing when you go to another country i was just trying to clarify how that the practicality there's of physical no, transactions there's no work. borders with cryptocurrency. No, I understood. I mean, there's really no borders with any currency, but uh, the the border or the or the barrier of a transaction is that one is very physical and we're used to it. The other one is not really there yet. So I don't know if there's a credit card. Uh, I can go with any credit card that is Visa, Mastercard, internationally accepted, and then I can buy things in any country. And they they will charge me a fee for the exchange rate and all that stuff, and and that's the, just the price you pay. But you can use them. I don't know if there's any credit card or debit card that you can use with crypto that says, okay, well I have, you know, ten bitcoins, which is worth about six thousand seventy sixty five thousand dollars or whatever, or no more, uh, ten a hundred thousand something, and um, I then go to a country and use that credit card based on the value that I have for crypto to to make transactions. You know how easy it is to do something like that. Is that even feasible? If you want to spend your Bitcoin, yeah, like directly, like use it, yeah. I mean, it depends if they take it. I know, I know. We said last week <coughs> that our PayPal already takes both Bitcoin and Ethereum, and you can basically just—they actually act as an exchange themselves. They, right, they exchange. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you want to not have middlemen and mm-hmm. just do Bitcoin transactions, yeah, I mean, obviously that's like where Bitcoin needs more adoption. Is people okay. need to transact in it. You know, one of the biggest problems Bitcoin faces is nobody wants to spend it. 
Right. Like I have a bunch of Bitcoin. I could spend it, but I want to keep it. No, obviously. I'm just talking about people value. that don't have a choice because all they have is Bitcoin and now they need to start using it for the daily sure. expenses. Nope. You know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the easiest way right now is just go to an exchange and get your euros or dollars, whatever you need. Right. Um, but yeah, obviously the, the ideal in the future is that you can spend it directly. That's why we didn't get into the Lightning Network with Bitcoin and all that. Right, right. But that's, what it's, that's the idea that you could buy anything with bitcoin mm -hmm. uh but yeah that's where the adoption comes in wow very intense uh an hour and a half almost of uh crypto um anything You're else really me i had to i, know. I had to reach deep well into you, my, are, uh, you are memory been, bank you are i mean i i'm i know the basis of the technology blockchain and crypto and all that stuff but i'm more on the surface and you definitely are much more much deeper into knowledge that's why i wanted to ask you this because i do have a lot of friends investors that are amazingly not very aware of how crypto works you know or blockchain and maybe they're all more old-fashioned traditional investors what i'll say i think how it works when we're talking about if it's going to be used by the masses i don't think uh, i i think people in the crypto community are way too concerned with trying to explain the mechanisms and the technical side of how it works to people i don't think people care uh, no, but I think the do, point that I don't made, think most people even if you ask anybody on the street, can you explain to me fractional reserve banking, which is what every single bank in America operates on? Yeah, they have well, no even, idea. Even it even, doesn't really matter. It, even, you just need to make it work and be convenient. And that's why Lightning Network, if it works, is going to be a big difference maker. But um, even as a company goes public and they issue, they say, okay, X company is going public. They're issuing like 100 million shares or whatever. And then they give it a value, which is the IPO, initial public offering. And that value basically starts trading. And if investors think that it's a good investment, then obviously it goes way up. And then the initial investors get their money back, like you said, and then new investors start. But it's based on a limited number of shares that are issued by the company. So some people obviously understand that. Some people, that are, they think that there's, I mean, for every time you make a transaction in the stock market, when you buy some shares, means that somebody else is selling them. It's not that you buy something from the from the shelf, you know. I mean, there, there's people that are buyers and sellers, and that's what the exchange is. They, whereas New York Stock Exchange or whatever, so somebody's selling and you are buying, and somebody else, uh, agrees to sell at a price, and then you buy at that price. That's understood. Um, in the crypto, it's very new, and that's why it's so volatile because there's a limited number of shares in this case, which is coins. So every transaction, when people have liquidity issues, like you mentioned to me the other day, and they say, okay, well, I was investing in Bitcoin, but now for whatever situation, I actually need the money. So I need to sell my Bitcoin by necessity, not because I want to, and multiply that times thousands of people, then all of a sudden there's a big supply of Bitcoin that is out there in the market, and then the value depreciates. And that's why you see these big fluctuations. Like just in the last few days, Bitcoin went from, like I said, 11.5, 11,500 to 13.7. And then just between yesterday and today, it went down from 13.7 to 13 flat. And now it's back up to 13.5, 13.6. So that's because people are basically trying to figure out what to do when some people don't have a choice but to sell it. But because there's a limited supply so far and it's very new, there's a lot of fluctuations. You know, if, if I sell a thousand shares, shares of a Caterpillar, it's like a fucking nothing. It's not even a caterpillar <laughs> doesn't doesn't care. If a mutual fund or something sells millions of shares, then yes, you see a lot of you see some some fluctuation on the stock price, obviously. 
So that's that's the situation that is happening with Bitcoin. That is yeah, a little and, more. And of so, a, okay, we had this discussion. I think a lot of people don't understand um, what Bitcoin as an asset. Like like basically back in March when um, everything was dropping because of of, of COVID, um, the markets dropped. Uh, bonds went down, gold went down, and Bitcoin went down. I mean, right. everything was down. Right. And I, what I was saying to you was that it was because there was a liquidity crunch. It's not because um, th that basically the reason why even gold went down, which gold is the hedge uh, in a lot of these situations, mm -hmm. or bonds versus stocks, right? A lot of people buy bonds as a hedge for stocks. Everything was down. Right. Because when you have a liquidity crunch, Everything goes down because what you you're always exchanging something for something, right? And so when you have a liquidity crunch, meaning people need dollars mm -hmm. because right now we transact everything in dollars, and you have a margin call here or you need to cover a loss here, you need dollars to do that. And so you're gonna sell anything, whether it's gold, whether it's bonds, whether it's stocks, whatever, or Bitcoin. Um, and that's what happened because really what, when all those things go down, you know what that means? That means the dollar is going up, right? Because you are exchanging something. We don't think about it that right. way, right? When you sell a stock, you're saying, I want to exchange my shares in this company for dollars, right? Or vice versa. You're saying, I don't want to own dollars. I want to own shares in this company, right? People don't necessarily think about it like that, but that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so, um, Bitcoin went down. Now, over this year, Bitcoin is up. Um, and my, my thing is, Bitcoin is not a hedge for volatility. And what we had earlier this year was massive volatility. I mean, look at what happened with the VIX. Bitcoin is not a hedge for volatility. And Bitcoin is not a hedge... When you're investing, I mean, this gets into like risk theory, but there's different types of risk. And what the biggest risk that was happening in March was actually uncertainty of what the pandemic was going to be because right. we had no idea. And so because of that, uh, everybody was selling everything because mm -hmm. they said, I don't want to own any shares in these companies because I don't know what their earnings are going to be. I don't want to own these bonds because I don't know if they're going to be able to pay well, back their the bonds. The market sell off. I mean, in March, and the so, market dipped. And so because all of a sudden you had this spike in volatility, Bitcoin is not a hedge for volatility. What Bitcoin is a hedge for, if you're looking at uh, portfolio risk allocation, Bitcoin is a hedge for sovereign debt and a hedge for inflation and currency manipulation. That's what Bitcoin is a hedge for. Bitcoin is a hedge for a sovereign debt crisis and currency crisis. Um, and so when the U.S. dollar starts uh, or when the U.S. government starts printing a ton of dollars, that's when Bitcoin goes up because it's a hedge for that. And gold is very similar. Um, so that's what Bitcoin's a hedge for. Right. Uh, but it's not a hedge for volatility. And when you have volatile times, Bitcoin's going to be just as volatile as everything else. Yeah, the amazing thing is that Bitcoin has great, great advocates and great, great detractors. I mean, people love it or hate it. And, and they don't, you tell, you, tell, you tell some people anything about Bitcoin, it's like they don't want to listen to you. And some other guys are like, they, I mean, they rape by Bitcoin and any crypto. I mean, they think that is the future. So I think there's always uh, somewhere in the middle. But again, the same thing happens with gold. You know, you have people that think gold is, is the safe haven for everything. And, and 
some other people say no why why own gold i mean it's like i'm never gonna use gold anyway so might as well just save money or whatever you know so all right i think uh we'll wrap it up here uh thanks david for um uh this uh amazing i mean it's amazing really all the knowledge you have about all these all these topics is it's not easy to understand and uh hopefully everybody's a little more clear now on how uh, crypto works uh blockchain and everything is I'm more confident, especially as far as making, you know, being able to make uh, educated decisions where you decide to buy or not. And we're not advocating where you buy or not. Any, any, we're definitely not financial advice. But, um, you know, because of the time that we live now, where the, with the pandemic and global situation with governments and printing money, and we're already knowing that the economies around the world are going to take a hit at some point. Once the governments realize that they cannot print any more money and, and everything is going to be a little bit more chaotic. Um, it's good to know the options that are out there, including, you know, from fiat currencies to bitcoins to gold to normal investments or just basically saving money. So, any other uh, final points, uh, David? No, I think we uh, covered a lot. Okay, well, that's it for now. Um, good luck with the um, <laughs> elections for everybody, whoever you vote for. Uh, hopefully, uh, you're happy after the elections and. Um, We'll see. Hopefully it will be peaceful and we'll find out who the next president of the United States is soon. Kanye 2020. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see you uh, hopefully maybe by next Thursday, which is two days after the elections. We may even know who it is or maybe we're still counting the ballots in the mail and all that stuff. So it's exciting. We'll be looking forward to that. Is, and, it, uh, is, is it exciting? It's not exciting. I'm, I'm actually excited. I'm looking forward to it. I, I just want to, I'm looking forward to it mostly because I want to get it over with and then just yeah, focus on something else. I so, can't wait. It's been, I, I think, is the most um, interesting election that I've lived in my life as far as, uh, at least in the U.S., for sure. Um, and that's what I said last night, too. So we'll see what happens with this one. So anyways, until next time, have a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk soon. Bye.